We're in a series, actually we're wrapping it up today, a series called The Seven Deadly Sins. We're going to combine two of them um, into one explosive sin. Um, Actually, I just thought it would be kind of fun to wrap it up before we go into the holidays. But uh, this series on The Seven Deadly Sins has been kind of exploring what the church in the history of the church is always seen as is kind of the gateway sins or the the fountainhead sins, the sins that are really deep in the heart and lead to all sorts of other sins. And and when we say sin, I think it's one of those words that we've heard it so many times we just are numb to it. Does that make sense? We don't actually think what does that word mean. Uh, all words are symbols. Okay, They're, they all stand for something. Uh, and when a, a word becomes too familiar. You think of the word um, and your experience with the word rather than moving on to what the thing symbolizes. Does that make sense? And so common language, you know, when, when you're having a meaningless conversation, it's words are flying around, but you're never getting behind the words. And what poets do, what good writers do, uh, they, they learn how to use language that forces you to re-engage with the concept that originally was there. Uh, the reality behind the words. And, and frankly, sin is simply a word that talks about a break or a breach in a relationship with God. And so we're talking about seven deadly sins, these sins that lead to other sins. And that word sin just kind of is so common. But what we're really dealing with here are what are those things that get in the way or cause us to have a, a breach in our relationship with God, a barrier a distance, a falling away from, uh, a lack of the presence of God or awareness of God in our life, and the, the guilt that comes with it, but, but just that huge kind of concept of despair and destruction. And so it's a pretty big deal. Um, and so hopefully the word sin doesn't just buck us off because it's so common. But so this series has been really trying to get at these things, say what are they, and then how can we learn from this and move on in our life in a way that leads to um, a flourishing, uh, the goodness that God intended, the satisfaction that he intended, the unity, the peace, the joy that he intended. And so especially in this season where we kind of think about Advent and the whole idea of God sending his son because he loves the world, and then the angels say when when Jesus arrives, and, and if you really want to throw people off, if you if you do a, a Bible study, angels don't sing until the book of Revelation. They say up until the book of Revelation. So it's a really fascinating thing. The angels said, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so God is sending his son because he loves the earth, and as his son comes, to die for the sins of the world so that they can be reunited, we can be reunited with God, the angels proclaim peace and favor and joy. We, we you know, bring news, glad tidings. It's in all the Christmas carols. You just go put a CD on when you get home, you'll, you'll hear it. But this idea of, of the goodness and the joy that was intended, is intended, in this relationship with God. And so, the thing we hunger or should hunger for the most that's to be found in this relationship with God, these sins take us away from that. It's a, an amazing thing that 
what would enslave us can, can often look so wonderfully packaged and attractive. And, and that's kind of the real crazy thing with sin is that sin often comes wrapped in attractive clothing and it enslaves us and takes us away from God and the relationship God would have with us in Him. So today as we get to this, we hit two really, really interesting sins. Uh, the sin of gluttony and the sin of sloth. Um, in Latin, it was called Acadia. Um, and so we're going to start with gluttony here, and I want to move through these real quick and then try and get to what's maybe beneath some of this stuff. So um, very quickly, gluttony is a sin of the appetite. It, the word, the root word has to do with throat, and it has to do with overeating, and it's just pretty simple. It's, it's overindulgence with regard to food and deriving your worth or your pleasure or your happiness or your fulfillment in gorging yourself on a regular basis with food. So something that was meant as a means to sustain life becomes life in itself. We end up confusing means and ends and are therefore led kind of into this addiction that takes us away from what it was we otherwise would have been serving or doing. Gluttony is a sin of the appetite. only shows up like seven times in the Bible. And uh, it's often paired with, with laziness, kind of sloth. We're going to get to that in a minute. But let me just read a couple of these to you, the ones in Proverbs. Uh, but it says in Proverbs 23, 2, Put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Proverbs 23, 21. For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Proverbs 28, 7. A discerning son heeds instruction, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. It's a really interesting thing that the church would call gluttony a deadly sin for all these years. It's, it's something, again, that just shows up a little bit, and we begin to kind of wonder, what, what really is going on there? And so I want to march into the next one here, and that's sloth. And sloth is the avoidance of physical or spiritual work. The avoidance of, of physical or spiritual work. And right off the bat, we should realize that those two things are connected, physical and spiritual work. Oftentimes, work has a spiritual quality. It has a joy that comes uh, with it, a satisfaction that comes with it, a sense of nobility that comes with it. And um, Christians were always, the Protestant work ethic, were always known for understanding the creative uh, role that we play in this world and the role that work, hard work, plays in this world, that we reap what we sow. And sloth is the absence of that physical work um, or the spiritual dimension that comes with it as well. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. That came from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, and the church throughout history, again, the Latin church, there is an aspect to this word that's, that's lost in the English. So this, this kind of Latin word, Acadia, um, has this idea of melancholy in an apathetic or listless sense. And what they, what they really believed, that this would lead to despair 
And that if despair was kind of full born, it would lead to suicide, which was an unpardonable sin in the Catholic Church. Uh, would keep you from being buried in the parish burial ground. So this idea of sloth, Acadia, this unwillingness to engage in the spiritual world or in, in the relationship with God and would lead to a, a darkness or an emptiness here, which would lead eventually to snuffing out the light, almost a desire for suicide. Um, because you're so far removed from an active engagement in what is spiritual or what is our relationship with God. Dante, in his, his great work, had the punishment in hell, this kind of poem, epic poem that he did. The punishment in hell for those committing this sin was to run at top speed continuously. It's kind of an interesting picture, huh? That the punishment is... Like, I mean, can you just see a, a college kid playing video games right now and bags of chips everywhere and, and then just coming in and marching them out and just making them run at top speed, you know? Um, or a guy that's on his third go-round of SportsCenter, and it hasn't changed. You guys know this. <laughs> SportsCenter doesn't change when it flips from one hour to the next. It just repeats. Um, it's funny, in college, I had an 8 o'clock class for two years in a row, and then all afternoon classes, and I'd come back, 9.20, catch the last 40 minutes of Sports Center, and then at about noon, I would get up to make lunch. You know, it's just it's the same Sports Center. So um, I have four kids, and so I just recently got back into Sports Center as a spiritual discipline um, that I needed in my life. That and, and uh, Tim Tebow, you know, it's, fascinating, it's fascinating to me. So I, uh, does God weigh in on sports games, you know? Um, so I've gotten back into Sports Center, and it's amazing. It's like, turn it on at 10 o'clock at night, and then at like 1, you know, I'm still watching this. It doesn't change. I should go run top speed. Um, let's get at it here just a little bit deeper. Dante, uh, Dante refined this kind of further, his definition of sloth, and, and listen to how he describes this. He said this Acadia, this slothfulness, was a failure to love God with all one's heart, all one's mind, and all one's soul. This kind of apathy was a failure to love God thoroughly, with all one's heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love of God and love of neighbor kind of come together, don't they? In Scripture, they're always paired. And, and what's fascinating about apathy uh, is it really doesn't just take us out of our love for God, but it begins to take us into this weird place where we have really no love for others, even if they're undergoing injustice. Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights period said that the greatest obstacle to civil rights wasn't the Ku Klux Klan member, but the white southerner who was apathetic, the white middle-class southerner who just was comfortable and passive. Garrison Keillor said the same thing about the slave movement. Listen to what he says. 
The apathy of the people is enough to make every statue leap from its pedestal and hasten the resurrection of the dead. That such gross injustices, when they go on, and we just have this kind of listlessness, this separation from it, this disengagement kind of passiveness, that when, when that is happening in the face of such great injustices that ought to require action or hard work based on love for neighbor, that, that this, this ought to cause such frustration and anger that it would just hasten the day of judgment. So this spiritual laziness, we can talk about it on one hand, kind of what it looks like. So again, I, I, it's, it's funny. Um, your misery is your ministry. Have you guys ever heard me say that? Your misery is your ministry. What really bugs you is what you should be doing or investing your time into, okay? If worship really bothers you, then you should probably get involved in worship because you care about it more than anyone else. If lack of evangelism bothers you, you should go be a missionary because you care about it more than anyone else. Your misery is your ministry. God puts that holy dissatisfaction in you, okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Preaching is my misery, and so I do it, okay? Preaching is where, or, or the teaching of the church is where I have a, a very deep-seated, holy dissatisfaction. Um, and so I have to wrestle with it. So if we're talking about sloth and the typical sermon, it would be, all it would be, would be me talking about uh, you 20-somethings or high school kids that all you do is play video games. Or you fathers that ought to be out trying harder to, to bring home what you need to for your uh, family, but you've found this escape. Or with gluttony, I could easily say gluttony is overindulgence, you know. Hey, and, and let's, 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 let's bring up examples of sloth on stage or, you know, examples of gluttony and, you know, let's, let's really see this. You know what I mean? It's, um, you, you women who like to shop. See, they didn't have that back in the New Testament. Um, but you see, gluttony and alcohol and drunkenness go together. It's the same thing. It's an addiction of indulgence that takes you off course the same as an addiction to shopping and indulging yourself and spending your life into something that tries to meet some need that you should be meeting somewhere else, okay? Like, the typical sermon would be, let me lay it on thick so that you guys squirm with guilt. And then my job's done. You walk out of here feeling like garbage, and, and, and you know what I'm saying? Like, that... That's the kind of thing that bugs me. Now, is that not true? No, it's true. But sloth, if we want to understand the sin, the sin is not the front visible side. The real heinous part of the sin is the back hidden side. So an apathy here is just, what's the big deal? So I'm not really engaged. It's not like I'm hurting anyone. 
but you look over here at what are the injustices that you're allowing to happen because you're so passive. Or, look, you know, Call of Duty, well, you know, it's not, well, you know, it's a video game. Really? Like, it's not that bad. It's not this, it's so bad. It's what you're not doing for your son or your daughter or your wife or your church community or for God or even for yourself because you're so occupied with something of zero value. So I, I can talk about all of this and make you feel guilty, but at the end of the day, it's kind of a shoulder shrug because we're not really getting at the heart of what's going on. And the heart of what's going on is a breach in relationship where your, your duty or what you owe to yourself and others is not being fulfilled. When I was a college pastor, I, I tried to help people define sin, these college kids define sin, and this is how I defined it. And this is how I look at it still. Sin destroys relationship. Anything that builds up relationship probably is not sin. And this is how we walk into areas of gray, like alcohol. Alcohol can grease the wheels of relationship, can't it? You show up at a dinner, bottle of wine with friends, and there's a social aspect to alcohol, isn't there? Isn't this why Jesus made wine? The wedding? However, if you continue to drink, if you overindulge, what begins to happen? It begins to get awkward. You lose control of yourself or what you're saying or what you're thinking, and you begin to say or do things that make other people uncomfortable. If you continue on, you actually begin to become foolish, where you're destroying your own reputation and maybe causing irreparable harm to another relationship based on what you're doing. You might even get in a car, hurt somebody, injure somebody else, or get a DUI and really, again, injure your reputation and your standing in the community or the office to which you hold a title. And so what once was something that was relational and communal and bringing people together as celebration becomes with uh, the degree of severity something destructive and so to the degree that it builds up relationship and it's healthy and doesn't cause harm, it's something that in Scripture seems to be okay or permissible. But never in Scripture when it begins to get into this area do you see it as being okay. It's, it's a problem and it breaks relationship. And so what we begin to realize is there's this litmus test for sin that says the ultimate in obedience is to love God and love others. My unity and my relationship and the closeness, the intimacy and, um, that I have with God and others is the chief thing I ought to be committed to. And the opposite of that is when I'm engaged in things that begin to damage or cut off that relationship. And so gluttony. If I'm so given to overindulgence to the degree that it's no longer healthy or that it's no longer um, a part of a feast. You guys know that gluttony, I mean, not gluttony itself, but indulgence is, is at times 
a wonderful thing that Scripture holds up? What's the biblical word for it when it's a good pleasure? Feasting. God commands feasts. Feasts are things you do every now and then where you come together and you, you do feast. And it's this relational time and it's a celebration and it's, it's thanksgiving to God and it's worship. It's just not all the time. Or you don't do it by yourself. So just like, you know, you, in college, you know, there's a lot of alcohol, right? And, you, and it was, re, you know, relational, stuff like that. When did you begin to get worried about somebody? When they started drinking at 9 in the morning or when they were drinking alone? There's nothing relational about that, right? It's the same with food. When you begin to overindulge with food all the time, or even when there's not a, a relational aspect in a table with a bunch of people around it and you're celebrating or worshiping God, but you've now divorced those two things, it, it begins to be destructive. And so love God and love others is this kind of chief ethic that we've got, this thing we're given to. And sin is what attacks that. Sin is what takes us away from that. Sin is what destroys and corrodes and poisons relationship. And so when I'm a glutton, I'm not just doing it to myself. I'm doing it to others and I'm doing it to God. When I'm lazy or when I'm not willing to put in any spiritual work, I'm a dad who's not willing to labor to figure out what prayer even looks like so that I can lead my family in prayer, teach my kids about prayer, show up um, with, you know, the, here's a picture of, of spiritual laziness is when mom has to force dad out of bed on a Sunday morning. When mom is dragging dad to church, dad is not a spiritual leader. When, when there's a lack of engagement to figure out what these spiritual things are so that you're in a position to teach them, you're not just affecting yourself. You're affecting your wife, you're affecting your kids, you're affecting your friends, and ultimately you're dishonoring God, and it breaks relationship. If we're supposed to be loving God and loving others, we cannot be engaged in these things that are destructive to those very ends. Does that make sense? I read it last week, but I'll have you turn there this morning. Genesis chapter 4. Listen to what God says. This is right at the beginning of Scripture, and this theme carries itself all the way through the Bible. From the book of Genesis all the way through half of Revelation. This concept. So we've got Cain and Abel, and they're presenting sacrifices. And God was happy with what one brought and dissatisfied with what another brought. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, Why are you so angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, if you do right, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, behold, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, 
Its desire is to master you, to control you, to lead you. But you must rule over it. If you do right and obey and love God and love others, will you not be accepted? Will God not be pleased? Will God not um, take satisfaction and delight in that offering if you do what is well? But if you are not engaged in doing what is well, sin is right there at the door. My daughter Esther is in this, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd even call it, the surprise thing like where where you pop out at people. You know what I'm talking about? Every two seconds, hiding behind a couch, behind a bush. And her, her next youngest sister is Sarah. So Sarah's the victim of this, right? So 20 times a day, Esther's popping out and, and scaring Sarah. And then Sarah's angry. And it's this kind of game of hers. But picture that. It's like, it's like this eagerness crouched behind the couch or behind the door, waiting to pop out and master you. The great game of American Christianity is this idea that we can sit back passively and that it's, it goes on in front of us. It's something we intellectualize. It's something that we learn. It's something that we render a judgment on. I, I either find this tasteful or not tasteful. I, I like it or uh, I'm displeased with it. We critique it like we would a movie or something like that. And, and we, we, we are more apt to allow others to serve us than we are to serve. But it's this great kind of passive game. And in doing that, we begin to slowly rob sin, the word sin, of the word picture that's behind it. And sin is crouching at the door. And if we don't engage in obedience and in holiness and in rightness and give ourselves unto this and try and find our pleasure and our satisfaction here, we're right on the edge of the door where sin wants to master us. And so I've said it a number of times, but all sin is idolatry. If we confuse means and ends, if food is a means to the end of fullness of life, Socrates said something like, uh, a glutton lives to eat where the wise man eats to live. When we confuse means and ends, where food is something that helps bring health so that we can serve God, love God, love others, If rest, the Sabbath principle, is something that's a part of balancing out life so that we're in a healthy position to continue in our relationship with God and others. When we take things that are means and we reorient ourselves so that those are our ends, we serve them, we do things on behalf of them, we dream about them, we look forward to them, we desire them, we're enamored by them, we're wrapped up with them, they define Define us. When we confuse those things, we now have created something else that is more important to us than our relationship with God. 
when we create something over here that is more important to us than our relationship with God, we are giving it a greater, by our actions, what is true in us, we are giving a greater precedence, a greater worth, a greater authority, a greater sway in our life to this than we are God. This is idolatry. We worship something, we give our lives to something as if it's our God when it is not God. All sin is idolatry. And so um, let's transition here for just a minute. I, um, do you guys know the word to pontificate? I was thinking about that this morning, right? Pontificate is the office of a pontiff. Pontiff, um, high priest, chief priest. Uh, if you go to the Vatican, you'll see it's, it's pontificus, pontifus maximus, or whatever, you know, chief priest. But the pontificate is the office of, of like, the chief priest. To pontificate is to act with a degree of arrogance and dogmatism and, and kind of authority as if, you know, you're some kind of a chief priest. It's hard to be asked to preach 30 times a year. To be asked to preach 30 times a year is kind of like saying, be the authority on 30 different subjects 30 different times during the year so that you can teach or lead or influence or whatever a group of people. And I think that sometimes, again, you know, preaching is my, mis- my misery. I never want to speak beyond what is true or authentic about me. I never want to preach. You know what I mean when I say preach that way? I'm not, I, do, I, I have been at times in my life a drunkard in other things. I understand the sin of overindulgence. I've been lazy at times in my life, and I understand the sin of where one's indulgence, the other one is inaction. I, these are not my besetting sins right now. I'm not here fully wrapped up in the felt quality of the felt experience or the difficulty of some of these things and the hold they can have on you. I can't pretend to be. Does that make sense? Like I, I can't for a second take myself out of the rational intellectualizing side the way God made me and, and really feel as if it's right here with me the felt quality that maybe some of you are feeling with some of your besetting sins that fall in these categories. But there's a commonality to all sin. And the commonality to all sin is that we have to find balance in our life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it says this, the man who fears God holds on to one and doesn't let go of the other. The man who fears God avoids all extremes. That we can become over-righteous like the Pharisee and fall into some sins over here 
And we can, be, we can become overindulgent over here and fall into other sins like gluttony. And, and there's a balance that comes to life where wisdom speaks in and we really wrestle with these things and say, what is correct or true or right or balanced that brings about the greatest harmony and unity and relationship? And I'm not going to go to an extreme and derive my pleasure from, from pride or gluttony. I'm going to derive my pleasure from being centered underneath you, God, doing what is right. And my pleasure comes from that relationship I have with you. And so I feast when it's time to feast. I don't when it's not. I commit myself to doing right, not because I'm going to identify myself with rightness, but because being right helps me stay close to God. And there's a balance that comes to these things. I was with uh, the 20-something group that meets at our house last Sunday night. And I told them this so I can tell you guys this. I was like, I really, I, I did not want them come o- coming over that night. I sat there all day, just, woe is me. Um, what did I do to deserve this, God? I just want to be alone. I don't want them coming over. So I, hat- I hatched a plan. And I was like, okay, they'll come over. And we'll talk about Tim Tebow and prayer and sports. Are you in favor of it? Not in favor of it? What do you guys think? 20 minutes, then we'll move on, and then I'll kick them out of the house so I can dial up a movie on iTunes with my wife, which is all I really want to do in life, is just sit there <laughs> and unwind with my wife. And then um, we had this time of worship. And this time of worship changed everything for me. And here's, I've never in my life put this phrase together before, but towards the end of that time of worship, I put this phrase together. Worship, worship, seeing God, being centered underneath God, having a degree of, of clarity. You know what I mean by worship? That kind of worship? Where, where, you know, a 10, 20 minutes in, everything else has kind of faded away and you're all of a sudden being centered and the, and, and the light is kind of being spotlighted, just it, the lights are being turned up in life and, and there's this sense of God's presence. You know what I'm talking about? Here's what the sentence was, I realized. Worship forces honesty. Worship forces honesty. And I, I began to think, and I was like, you know what? Um, scripture forces honesty. You can't spend 20, 30 minutes reading Scripture and have it not shine a light in your heart and force honesty. I think even beauty forces honesty. You see a sunset, and it kind of just, everything melts away, and you're kind of like, maybe life's a little more simpler than I thought. Worship forces honesty. It exposes things, recenters you, and, and, you, and you kind of begin to realize it's really, really simple. I either respond to God out of my messiness, claim grace and forgiveness, ask for His help, 
in following only him, worshiping only him, or I choose to go looking for satisfaction somewhere else. All sin really is is a game between God and not God. God's way and my own way. God's wisdom and some good ideas I've got. Spiritual work and spiritual laziness. Serving God or being mastered by sin and controlled. Being a slave or being set free. And so, Jesus says, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. What are you set free from? The Romans? Your bank mortgage? The fact that you need to work 40 hours a week or 50 or 60? What are you set free from? Sin. These sins... These sins, whatever the sins are, they master us. And we are not stronger than sin and evil and our own selfishness. Our ability to choose self at the expense of our relationship with God and with others. I am an expert. See, I can preach this all day long. You want to know why? I am an expert at self. Anyone here not? I know how to choose self. I know the games I can play to enable myself or justify myself to choose self. I know the hidden turns. I've experienced the ways I can spiritualize it. I can can see how it can walk so hand in hand with religiosity. Um, I can be set free from that. I don't have the ability to pull myself up by my, by my, my own bootstraps, though. If the Son has set you free, you'll be free indeed. God so loved you. God so loved you that he sent Jesus during that Advent season so that there would be peace on earth, there would be goodwill towards man, that you would know joy, that you would know satisfaction and intimacy and goodness and truth The gospel forces honesty. That it's not me who's righteous, but it's Christ that's righteous. And I get to inherit his righteousness in his favor, have this relationship with God, and that I can begin to be remade so that I don't choose self, but I begin to take joy in choosing others. That I'm willing to die to self, that it's better to give than receive. Are you tracking with what Christianity is here? This is the gospel we're talking about. This is not showing up and in, in doing a checkbox kind of traditional religious thing so that we can feel like as we lay out our life, I have savings, I put money into the college, kid things, for, you know, I've got retirement. Oh, I went to church on Sunday and then I went to the gym and I've got all my checkboxes checked. I like myself. It's not it at all. The gospel forces honesty. 
that left to yourself without God's intervention, you will choose yourself. But if we yield, if we yield and surrender and repent of that, and then turn to Christ and say, God, I see your plan in Christ. Christ, I see your love for me. I accept that offer, that gift, that, that, that salvation, that atonement. That now, something really illogical and paradoxical and counterintuitive can begin to happen in my life. Where my joy can be found in the things that nobody would understand because they're not earthly. Everyone can understand eating food, drinking beer, doing drugs, sleeping around, playing video games, watching sports, making a lot of money, buying a lot of nice clothes, getting a, li- a lot of nice things, um, adding friend after friend after friend, and becoming co- whatever the game is. Everyone understands that game. This game is foolish to people who don't understand what we understand. What we understand is that this is bankrupt and that playing those games is only going to lead to a loneliness and a despair uh, that will leave nobody truly satisfied. But when we cash in all those games and choose to accept this gift, We get to have a different orientation, a citizenship that's in heaven, a logic that we understand so fully. I was talking to a friend recently, and it was really simple. That friend had the aha moment that I had years ago. You want to know why I don't sin? It's really simple. Because I know what I would lose. And what I would lose means so much. There's nothing that sin promises that's, that's worth enough that I would trade what I have here. And if we're just playing this defensive behavior management sin game, but we're not replacing it with the joy that comes in this relationship with God, we're, we're just always going to be running around miserable trying to, to not step in landmines and never really get sucked up into a life that God created for us that's so awesome that it becomes our reason for not sinning. Does that make sense? I don't have my draw pad here. Um, but John Piper, if you want to read a, a good book this Christmas break, read Desiring God. And John Piper did something really fascinating. He's an amazing theologian, so if you're an amazing theologian, you can play with the Westminster, uh, Westminster Catechism of Faith. Um, but the, the first question in the Westminster Catechism of Faith was, what is the chief end of man? What's the end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Now, Piper changed it. You want to know what he changed it to? And I think it was, I think he's smarter than the guys that were on that committee way back when in like the 1600s. Piper said we should change the word and to the word by so that it reads this way. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God by enjoying him forever. If we choose this over God, what are we saying? 
God is not enough, and that this is a greater pleasure. I desire this more. I enjoy this more. If we choose God or we are willing to submit to God over this, if that's going to work, we have to somehow understand what I think all the great theologians have always understood, and that's that we were made for God. And until we rest in God, we're not going to find our true meaning or our true happiness. The word happiness shows up all throughout church history in the best of devotional writing. Find your happiness to God. Only in the last hundred years with fundamentalism have we like thought for some reason it's weird to talk about happiness in God in the same sen- sentence. And it's not weird at all if you're talking about finding your happiness in God. Does that make sense? So when we worship God, one of the things it forces honesty, when we begin to realize all this other stuff is empty, and we go, God, I want to stay here. How do I stay here in this position? This honest, close, beautiful position of simplicity where I realize only you can truly satisfy that you are the source of my happiness and that when I choose you, when I choose to be happy in you, when I choose to think you bring me pleasure, that pleases you. It makes you feel valued. You derive satisfaction. Piper says this, I can go to my wife's door on our anniversary with flowers and I can knock on the door and she can answer it. I've got these flowers and she can say, oh Johnny, you shouldn't have. He says, and I can say one of two things. The first thing I can say is, yes I should have because it's my duty. I married you a long time ago. I made promises and whether I like it or not, This is my duty. And it's our anniversary. I had it on my day timer. I fit it in between golf and the gym because it's my duty. And I brought you these flowers. Here you go. Behavior management Christianity where sin is something we avoid just because we're supposed to. Now, Piper says this, or my wife can answer the door on our anniversary I've got these flowers. She says, oh, Johnny, you shouldn't have. And he says, you know what? Whether I should have or shouldn't have, it doesn't matter. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed going to the flower shop. I enjoyed thinking about it. I enjoyed the whole drive back. I've been so looking forward to giving these these to you because it is my pleasure And it brings me joy to give this to you. Which do you think, Piper asks, honors his wife more? When we go to God in obedience or worship or devotional spiritual disciplines, whatever it is, we can go to God and say, God, I'm doing my checkbox. I'm doing my duty. Um, you You should be glad. You should be happy that I'm so good at fitting you in between golf and the gym. Or we can go to God with reckless abandon saying, God, whether I have to or not, this is where I find my pleasure. This pleasure is more meaningful to me than any sin that I could do. And when I begin to look at these sins, one after another, lust or pride or the video game or the food, And when I begin to look at these, I look at them, I lay them out bare, and they begin to look like mirages. 
that what I'd get from them would be really hollow compared to the joy and satisfaction I'm going to get to this relationship. So take my life. Take who I am. Use it. Use my time. Use my energy. Use my money. Use my gifts. Let me serve. Let me give myself away. Just don't take yourself from me. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, said the psalmist. Because you are the source of my delight. You are the only thing that matters to me. If I've got you, I've got everything. If I don't have you, I've got nothing. So A.W. Tozer says this, I want God and I want nothing more. Is that the relationship you have with God? This isn't a, I pray that Antioch never becomes a guilt place. But here's the good news this morning. Not all addictions are bad addictions. I learned this when I was 22. Lost all my friends. And I replaced all my addictions with another addiction. I found that the best way to fight addiction is with a different addiction. I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. Um... Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it hint that being addicted to your relationship with God or being addicted to the pleasure you can derive in your relationship with God, the sense of satisfaction you can have coming from your relationship with God, the joy that can come from knowing that you have closeness with God and that He's proud of you. Nowhere in Scripture does it hint that maturity, spiritual growth, discipleship, worship, or obedience, or love are ever wrong. In fact, if we read, let's just turn there. We'll end on this. Turn to Galatians 5, and let's just end here. Get ready. I want you guys to walk out this morning addicted. To something. You, you figure it out. But so check it out. It begins this way, and it wraps up everything I've said. So in 5.13, Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. You, my brothers and sisters here this morning, God has called you. He's called you to freedom. He wants to liberate you from sin and its mastery and its hold in your life. Whatever addiction you have that's taking you away from serving your chief end in life, God wants to set you free from it. He has set you free from it. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't indulge yourself. Don't become apathetic. Don't, don't use that freedom to just coast off into something else. Rather, give your life away. The phrase he uses here is serve one another in love. Give your life away. Because you don't need to serve your life. You already got all that you need in Christ Jesus and in your relationship with God. Rather, serve one another in love. Because the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, 
watch out that you are not consumed by one another. As we go into sin, what does it do? It destroys and rots relationship. It's acidic and corrosive to relationship. This holiday season, if you want to know what sin is, just hold up that litmus test. Is this going to build up relationship or is it going to destroy relationship? It's that simple. Love builds up, sin destroys. So then we're going to drop down and we're going to read the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. Chapter 5, verse 22 of Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit, when God is working in and around and through you, what it is going to bring about in you, what it's going to grow and nurture in you, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't know you, but if I met that person in a room, it's the person I would envy And it would be a good kind of envy. I would admire them and want to be like them. These are good. This is what we really want in life. It's what fills and satisfies these virtues that God will bring about as we serve him and him alone. Now listen to this last sentence. Against such things, there is no law. Now this is Jewish culture. In America, we talk about law as in The penal system in America, the legal system in America, as long as you don't break one of those, you're fine. Laws only exist for like these things that you're not supposed to break. Does that make sense? In the Jewish culture, there were those kinds of laws, but then there were all these other laws and commands you were supposed to do too. All of life had laws. There was legislation for everything. Do you, under, do you understand that culture that Paul is speaking into here? And so when he says this, against these things of God, this way of finding yourself in God, what God does in you and acting on that, this, against this, there's no law. There's never a time when it's wrong. There is no legislation, never has been, never will be, Anytime it's prohibited to have love, joy, peace, patience. It's never wrong. Therefore, you can be addicted to those things. You can run after, you can desire, and you can enjoy love and joy and peace and patience. You can find pleasure in those things all day long in your relationship with God and what he's doing in and through you. Because there's never a time when it's wrong. So this morning, you can serve and find your pleasure here. Or like John Piper says, you can glorify God by enjoying Him forever as your chief end in life. I had a friend send me a letter this week that I hadn't seen since college. When I was a a new believer, I shared my faith with him, and, and he ended up becoming a Christian, and he and his wife just recently got baptized. And I had given him a Bible back then. This is 16 years ago, 17 years ago. And he photocopied the inside leaflet. And there was a phrase that I would picked up somewhere. I think it might have even been from my dad. Um, but I would written a little thing at the, at the beginning of this Bible. And it said, Sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Um, the true things force honesty. Worship forces honesty. The Bible forces honesty. Prayer forces honesty. 
And as we walk out this morning, I pray that we would have an authentic spirituality where we would submit it to the light. We would let God force honesty in our life. And as hard as it is, we would just say, God, I don't want this empty stuff anymore. Redeem my life. Save me out of this. Become my only delight.